Excuse me, sir. I was wondering if there is anyone who could give me some information about um the Outside of a Dog podcast. Outside of a Dog? <laughs> That's a name I haven't heard in a long time, kid. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, guys, and welcome back to Outside of a Dog. It's been a while, hasn't it? It really has been a while. Oh, not even a while. It's It's been a long time. Yes. Um, so as it turns out, uh, graduate school is actually quite hard. And at some point I realized that if I actually wanted to graduate of either of the two programs that I was enrolled in, I would have to put some work in. And so for the past two years, I have been doing two master's theses instead of recording a podcast. I'm sorry about that. But I promise never to do it again. And we're back with the podcast with an old new episode. Yes, we recorded this episode basically over two years ago. And finally, finally, we're ready to present it to you, to the entire world. With this disclaimer, we basically want to take you back, but we also want to take you forward because we want to continue this podcast. We will release new episodes once a month on the 15th, hopefully more reliably than until about two years ago. Fingers crossed. But now enjoy our episode on Wuthering Heights. Nelly, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind. Not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. Wait, so this is like Fight Club, right? Wait, did I just spoil Fight Club? Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas, with black hair and beard. And I'm Christian, and I am consumed by secret passions. And we're not on a windswept moor, we are not by a crackling fire, but we are talking about old tales, and this one is... Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Emily Bronte is, of course, one of the famous or infamous Bronte sisters, the most renowned sibling writers in English and maybe international writing history. Emily became most famous for the book we're about to discuss, Wuthering Heights. The sisters grew up in Yorkshire, and together they invented tales, had a very imaginative way of creating worlds, so it's no wonder that they all went into writing. Wuthering Heights was first published in 1847 and upon its publication it got very mixed reviews because many reviewers thought it was simply too wild, too crazy, too weird in a certain way. But nowadays it is actually considered to be one of the greatest romance novels ever written. Wild and crazy certainly fits the tale. Just a brief overview of the convoluted story. The book takes place between two houses on the Yorkshire Moors. Wuthering Heights, a rather small and not-so-nice house, and Thrustcross Grange, a much bigger, much nicer, much richer house. We begin the book with Mr. Lockwood, who has just moved into Thrustcross Grange, and he meets his landlord, a mysterious, solitary Mr. Heathcliff. Heathcliff lives with a sort of son, it seems, but also his widowed daughter-in-law, in a situation that seems unpleasant for everyone involved. Lockwood is kind of perplexed by this and asks his housekeeper, Nellie, 
how it came to this peculiar state of affairs. And she tells him all, starting with Heathcliff's childhood, when he, 30 years earlier, was adopted by the previous owner of Wuthering Heights. She relates how, eventually, by marrying the son of the owners of the big house where now Lockwood lives, Cathy, Heathcliff's adopted sister, actually becomes the lady of the manor. Heathcliff, however, is heartbroken and leaves because he himself was in love with Cathy. And he only returns several years later, having mysteriously gained uh, suspicious wealth. He proceeds to marry Cathy's sister-in-law, but not because he actually loves her, just to spite the man who snatched his love from him. Heathcliff sets out to inflict his revenge and destroy everyone that was involved in his misfortune. He does this by first marrying Cathy's sister-in-law. She then runs away and has a child. He also raises Cathy's nephew into a total brute, and he then plans to marry his own son to Cathy's daughter, who's also called Cathy or Catherine, but Cathy, so the older Cathy died. You see, it's complicated with the family. Basically, the woman Heathcliff loves marries another man, he runs away, comes back, Cathy dies, giving birth to new Cathy, and he plots to have his son marry this new Cathy so that eventually all the surrounding lands and both the houses that the two families live in will be in his possession. And he succeeds. But maybe he doesn't. Because, but Cathy and Heathcliff's sort of adopted son eventually reconcile the differences and at the end of the novel find something almost akin to love. Wow. <laughs> so there is a lot going on in this novel, apparently. A lot. <laughs> so let's go through some of the aspects, at least. And I think... First of all, before we get into the plot details, an interesting detail that needs to be mentioned is the narration. Because, as mentioned in the beginning, the novel is apparently told through the eyes of Mr. Lockwood, the new lodger. However, the main part of the narrative is told to him by Nellie Dean, who presents her own perspective on things in the past. And this double narrative bind, you might say, makes the whole thing very interesting, because the main characters, we never hear their own story. Heathcliff and Cathy in particular, but also their children, we only see them through the eyes of the others. And both of these narrators are kind of unreliable. Definitely Nellie presents herself as, oh, you know, I'm just a nurse. I'm just a good servant who tells what's the best for everyone in my care. She's a scheming bitch, isn't she? <laughs> she, she intervenes, double crosses, tells on her wards, is nosy, sneaks into their rooms and goes through their papers. She, she, we cannot trust her, can we? Definitely not. She's probably the most fascinating character, exactly because we never get to hear about her, only through her own perceptions and how she describes the other characters. And it's quite interesting that she seems to be only this kind of lowly servant, but as Jonas has mentioned, she's very involved in everything. And and what's interesting is that not only is Nelly an unreliable narrator, but Lockwood is as well. He fancies himself to be quite the gentleman and the judge of character, but very obviously he's out of his element there in Wuthering Heights. He, he sort of is the outsider who comes in, this gentleman from London who comes up north and encounters the peculiar locals. 
and he sort of presents himself as, oh, you know, I, I, I hate people and I'm so solitary and I will enjoy myself here so much because Heathcliff is just like me. Bullshit. He is very interested in the people around him. It is interesting that these wholly unreliable characters are basically our guides to the whole story. And it adds to the alienation we sometimes feel to the main characters. Because let's face it, both Heathcliff and Cathy are not very sympathetic characters. Thank you for saying that, because partly whilst reading this book, I was cursing your name. I thought, what the fuck is this? These people are horrible to each other, but also horrible to me, the reader, <laughs> because I read it and I just tear my hair out at their idiocy. They are really the worst kinds of romantics who are so overcome with feeling that they die, literally. They're just wholly unlikable. It sort of gets better towards the end as I realized, oh no, they're not meant to be likable. This is a portrait of horrible people. And that is really depressing, isn't it? Or at least it could be, if it ended when Mr. Lockwood leaves Thrust Cross Grange. After he hears all about the strange machinations of Heathcliff and how he how he lured Cathy into marrying his son, who soon after that died, Lockwood sort of thinks, yeah, no, thank you, and leaves. And then he comes back seven months later and discovers that Heathcliff is dead and Cathy and... Hatton. Hurton. Hatton. 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 Let's call the whole thing off. This other guy who lived there have overcome this and have actually fallen in love and seem really, really nice together. So after you wade through this swamp, highly appropriate, this swamp of unpleasantness and of people being cruel, you have this little glimmer of hope at the end. Isn't that beautiful? It is, but I can still understand why Lockwood, for example, is also fascinated by the whole story. I mean, both Heathcliff and Cathy are wholly unlikable. They're egocentric, they're cruel, they're just following their whims. But at the same time, they're very well aware of that. Heathcliff in particular basically says, well, I'm not a good guy. I'm not here to make friends, basically. And his whole plan of revenge, you might argue, on the one hand, is absolutely excessive and he's just being evil for being evil's sake. But on the other hand, he has some grounds for his revenge. He was treated horribly by his adopted brother, by many other people, including Cathy, including Nellie. So you might ask the question, is Heathcliff supposed to be this demon as he's often portrayed in the book, or is he just a victim of sorts as well? Yeah, at the beginning when they grow up, uh, he is sort of cast out and forced to be a sort of servant in his own house. You already mentioned, is Heathcliff just evil, or is he turned evil by all the horrible things that are inflicted on him? And that is basically the question. Nature versus nurture. What is it? What makes these people in this book cruel? And there is certainly an argument to be made that it is nature. Nellie talks a lot about people being like their parents, inheriting certain character traits and character flaws especially. And most of all, Heathcliff is presented as inherently evil. And he is just evil because... He's evil and his nature is savage almost, really. And that leads me to the question, do you think Heathcliff is meant to be black? Because he's always mentioned that 
His hair and skin are dark, and he is described in these stereotypical ways of being choleric, of being cruel, of being inhuman, of being unchristian. Is this basically just a really long tract about how uncivilized black people are? Because I don't think I'd be okay with that. I think you don't have to worry. Um, on the one hand, Heathcliff is not black per se. Of course, he is definitely the other. But for Yorkshire in the 18th century, the other is probably already a person who is not from around here. On the other hand, I think the argument for nature is not that clear. You're right. A lot of talk about heritage, about children being like their parents, and I mean just characters looking like each other. Kathy, the daughter of Kathy, is supposed to look just like her mother. But on the other hand, I think the argument for nurture is just as strong. Kathy, for example, is not like Heathcliff, and yet they are the same, as she says. They have similar traits. And I think to a certain degree, Heathcliff is not presented as evil, as demonic as he seems to be. To a large degree, especially from Nelly's perspective, who's really positive towards him in the beginning, it is portrayed as, well, kind of an accident that in these surroundings, in the very rural environments of Yorkshire, it just cannot work. Heathcliff is not supposed to be there, and he reacts to it, maybe in a savage way, but yet, even from the viewpoint of the novel, in a still kind of an understandable way, at times, of course, very excessively so. But I think there is more than just, oh yeah, people are like that. That's how they're born. I think it's really a book of two parts for me. It starts with the first part, whilst Lockwood is first there, and that ends badly. And we know all the time that it's going to end badly because it's basically a long flashback. And that is the nature part, in my view, that there everyone just follows their nature. Then the second and much shorter part is exactly the other way around. That it begins, that we know that now the situation is a lot better, and we now hear how it came to be that way. Another interesting narrative style there, that we always know where we're going, and the interest is in the unraveling of the plot. And I think that is really the nurture part, because that is the part where Kathy and Herten start overcoming the differences, where they start saying, well, our parents were cruel to each other, and we were cruel to each other in the past, but maybe we can move beyond that. And if you read this as a novel about essentially domestic abuse, because that's what it is, this is about breaking the cycle of violence, of physical and emotional violence, and overcoming that and creating something more positive. And I like that idea, that it moves from nature to nurture, that it moves from violence to understanding. At the same time, I don't think you can separate the two that neatly. The first part maybe is more about nature, especially the relationship between Heathcliff and Cathy is often cast in these almost mythical terms. There's something that cannot keep them apart. At the same time, I think there are other characters that kind of put that into doubt. You have minor characters such as Joseph, for example, who's... He is the worst. Out of a whole host of characters that I hated, I hated him the most. But for me, he is this kind of bigoted, narrow-minded, mumbling asshole, and he represents the nurture part, that in this environment, this solitary, wild landscape with not a lot of people, 
is it's bound to lead into catastrophe. They're, you know, we have to understand why Joseph voted for Trump. Something like that, actually, I would say. And I mean, Emily Bronte probably knew a lot about growing up in Yorkshire and having to face narrow-mindedness and savageness that isn't necessarily just there in people, but simply because it wasn't the civilized world of the South or of London. And I think the nurture argument is, even in the beginning, still quite strong. It's, I don't think you can solve it. I don't think you can separate it. But of course, there are strong arguments for either side. But all this talk about nature and nurture, of course, leads us to the place where both really come from, the family. I earlier said that this is a novel about domestic abuse, essentially. Emotional, physical abuse. There are a couple of scenes of quite bone-chilling violence in this. And I think this book should be given to everyone who demands traditional family values. This is what traditional families were like. They were about property, they were about possession, and they were not nice to each other. Definitely not. I mean, most parent-children relationships, for example, are fucked up in some way. The scene where Hindley, Kathy's brother, basically in a drunken rage, almost kills his baby son, that is pretty dark. The scene where that baby's son, then as a toddler, is already so used to violence and to a disregard for life that as his sort of step-aunt, Heathcliff's wife, runs away from her horrible husband, she just runs past him casually, hanging a litter of puppies off the banisters of the stairs. This is a world in which people drop babies, hang puppies, and beat their wives and stab each other. And again, there's no difference between family in the narrow sense, parents and children, siblings and so on, and family in a wider sense. And maybe in a wider sense, this second generation, Hareton, Linton and Kathy, the second Kathy, they seem to have more of a chance. The horrible things that their parents, their parent generation did, they have to deal with that, obviously, and that's quite an obstacle to overcome. But in their very traumatized way, they might have a better chance of creating a new, somehow wholesome family than the nuclear families that were there in the beginning, because they obviously didn't do a very good job. Family really isn't a nice thing in this book. So maybe there's hope in romance. This is seen as one of the great romances of the ages, often about Kathy and Heathcliff. That is what the Kate Bush song is about, basically. That is what the famous scene that everyone knows where Lockwood, at the beginning, hears the ghost of Kathy coming back, tapping at the window, is very much about soulmates and that sort of bullshit. So is this actually a romance if all these people are so horrible to each other? It is a romance if you think that love is a horrible, blind, cruel sadistic thing that hurts people more than it actually saves them. Let's just point out that I'm in a relationship and you're single, so you can say this. <laughs> well, at least in Emily Bronte's view, there is something to this romance that is true. Again, we have to consider it's from Nellie's point of view, and Nellie seems to have this tendency to see things in a more dramatic or romantic way. So she casts Kathy and Heathcliff as the kind of romantic heroes, even though sometimes it really doesn't fit. But the way they describe their relationship 
this kind of very natural connection they have, even though it's a horrible connection that disregards everything and any sense of decency in a certain way. Even self-preservation. Yes, exactly. So there is still something that makes this sublime somehow bigger than life in a very horrible way. It, it's a dark, all-consuming kind of love that sort of eats up the people in it. And I think that is definitely a side to love. E even if you think love is a great thing, yeah, it can also hurt, though. But I think the book is so brilliant that it says, well, that's how certain people see it. But on the other hand, if you look at it quite neutrally, Heathcliff and Kathy are not this great love couple. They are victims of their circumstances. They maybe fall in love, but it's not that this love somehow saves them or helps them to deal with things that, or that it is somehow bigger than everything else. They're still people that are ruled by other things. Heathcliff is still a vengeful and greedy bastard. Kathy is still extremely volatile, and that doesn't change. They're not sublimated somehow by their love, and the love itself is maybe not understandable to normal people. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is somehow bigger. And love doesn't conquer all, definitely not. After Heathcliff imprisons the younger Kathy and forces her, literally at the threat of violence, to marry his son, the son, who before seemed a rather pathetic, weak, but kind of nice boy, turns out to be a huge colossal asshole, with a total disregard for his cousin-wife. So it's not like, oh, you know, if you have your soulmate, everything will be okay. No, you know, you can fall in love with someone and it can still be horrible. But you can also work on it and you can make it something good. That is definitely something I feel very strongly about. You can refer back to the sonnet episodes about that. And I think, I think these people's problem is just that they didn't get out enough. You know, just... Just take a ride to Liverpool even. Meet some other people. Don't just fall in love with your cousin who lives next door, even if next door is eight miles away. Again, the book seems to be aware of that. But to answer the question, is this a great romance? Maybe we have to say in the end, yes, it's a great romance because it is romance in a very complex and not very flattering light, but it still says that there is something like romance, that there is something like love, and love has a great effect on people, and maybe in the end even offers a certain hope for people as well. It's certainly not romance in the misbegotten way that, for example, Twilight has seen Wuthering Heights, where Bella thinks, oh, it's my favorite novel and it's such a great romance, and Heathcliff and Kathy are made for each other. That just shows how utterly, utterly wrong the image of love and of femininity of Stephanie Meyer is. I mean, seeing Kathy and Heathcliff as these great star-crossed lovers sort of ignores that Kathy dies halfway through the book. And I mean, in Twilight, Bella... Oh, hang on a minute. Well, yeah. anyway, we're not here to talk about Twilight anymore. But speaking of vampires, at the end of our last episode, you said that we wouldn't get away from the gothic. There is one scene where you think there might be a ghost, and it certainly is very effective. And then at the end, there's talk of ghosts again, but that is sort of dismissed as, ah, oh, well, no, that cannot be. Why is this gothic, really? You, as a gothic expert, can surely tell us that. Well, the ghost is, of course, a signifier for that, but ghosts usually stand for something else. And in this case, obviously, it is that sense of heritage. 
that in the past something horrible has been done and people cannot really get away from it. Usually the Gothic takes place in an enclosed space that is this great castle somewhere or the castle ruin or the catacombs beneath the castle or something like that. In this case it's more pedestrian maybe. Wuthering Heights however is still an enclosed space and the nature surrounding it is still a way of expressing Gothic excess. Gothic is always about things that cannot be suppressed, things that will always rise up, whether it's vampires from their graves or passions that have been kind of suppressed. So I think Wuthering Heights is definitely gothic in that sense, that the past will not die. It will always influence the present in some way, usually in harrowing and horrible ways. So it is definitely a more rural or domestic gothic than other novels. But it's there. Oh, it is certainly there. So if you're in the mood for a kind of gothic tale about how horrible love really is, maybe not that horrible, I would definitely recommend you read Wuthering Heights. I had my struggles with it. The people in it are despicable. But at the end of the day, it's a novel about family. And at the end of the day, I kind of grew to love them. I would definitely agree. When I first read this novel, I kind of compared it naturally maybe to Jane Eyre by the other Bronte sister, Charlotte. And I always thought that Jane Eyre is much more subtle, much more intricate than Wuthering Heights, which is at first glance at least all about passion and movement and impact, much more wild in a way. But rereading it, I noticed it is subtle. It is more negative in many ways, more cynical in many ways, but it gives such an amazing and complex portrayal of love, of family, and how these things are not necessarily in themselves good, but maybe they can be under certain circumstances. So yes, definitely read Wuthering Heights. Just don't have any illusions about the love story. So two cautious endorsements of Wuthering Heights. But Christian, of course, we cannot leave our listeners with just one recommendation. What else should they enjoy? Well, you could certainly enjoy Jane Eyre, which, which takes up similar topics, as I said, maybe in a more restrained way. But my recommendation is actually something else. Kathy and Heathcliff are horrible people, but maybe they deserve each other in a certain way. And I thought about other books that have that kind of relationship between the main characters. And I had to think of Let the Right One In by John Ivid Lindquist, the vampire story from Sweden. Because there you have basically a similar dynamic. You have Oscar, the young boy, who's basically a sociopath, who is a bullied child, but also he is the kind of guy you wouldn't be surprised to hear about doing some sort of school shooting. And he falls in love with Illy, the vampire girl. Well, debatable. And these two are horrible people as well. They basically kill in order to survive and to celebrate their relationship. And they're also children, at least at least Oscar is. So in a more gothic vein, they are very similar, and yet you cannot help but feel to a certain degree for them. I have not one, not two, but three recommendations. So I will make this quick. First, if you like the aspect of Wuthering Heights, that a southerner is coming up to the north and experiencing the strange things there, and sort of giving you a portrait of the people up there, I can recommend a much more modern portrayal of a northerner going down to the south 
encountering the strange people there and then giving you an account of their lives and their characters. It doesn't really need our endorsement or promotion, but S-Town, the new podcast by the people who produce Serial, is a great podcast, very intriguing, also full of horrible people, but also people who you sort of grow to care about. However, I would caution you that just as Nelly is maybe not the impeccable narrator that she makes herself out to be, Brian Reed, the host of the podcast, might not be all that reliable either. So I would recommend the article Airbrushing Shittown by Aaron Beatty in Hazlitt as well, because that really raises some of the interesting questions about perspective and narration in journalism. First two recommendations out of the way. What if you're just in the mood for a good old-fashioned gothic revenge story, like you were promised with Wuthering Heights? And maybe you would like something musical as well. So I would recommend The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, Sweeney Todd. There is, of course, the film version, so there's that. I would recommend the cast recording from uh, 2012, where they made the interesting choice of casting a singer as Sweeney Todd. A great tale of revenge, gothicness, and set around the same time as Wuthering Heights. 1840s? Wuthering Heights is in 1801, but... Ah, well, you know, half a century, whatever. (laughs) So that was what we recorded over two years ago on Wuthering Heights. Actually, in order to help us with the relaunch of this podcast, we have set up a Patreon. So if you want to support us, if you want to help us, please go to patreon.com slash outside of a dog. It helps us cover the cost of hosting the podcast, buying books, buying wine, which we need to tolerate each other's presence. So patreon.com slash outside of a dog and support us in whatever way you can. And in the future, we even have some rewards. So please stay posted. So we need to go on. But to go on, sometimes you actually have to go back. So Jonas, you have a book that not only is apparently fit for this podcast, but that you also have a lot to say about. Yes, next month we are going to go back all the way to the 1500s and we will discuss Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. Wolf Howl, Wolf Howl. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Heathcliff was adopted as a baby by the former owners. Not not as a baby. He was was a baby. No, no, he was young. He was like nine or something. But the father carried him in his coat. Yeah, but he was still a small child. He wasn't a a baby. You couldn't carry a nine-year-old in a coat, could you? Like, he carried a child under his coat? What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, yeah. It was olden days. You could do that. (laughs) Nowadays, you couldn't just carry a child under your coat. Just... By mere physics.